Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Let's just uh, take a step back for a second and remind ourselves where we are in James. We've said from the beginning in week one of our overview that this is a series for the saved and hopefully steadfast, right? James is writing a group of Messianic Jews, Jewish people that believe that Jesus is the son of God and he's calling them to be steadfast believers. He's calling them to be single-minded, stable, and undefiled with how they live. And then we've been in the last couple of weeks, if you can t- take a look, we've, we've talked about if we are going to be saved and steadfast, if we are going to be fully devoted followers of Christ, how we handle our trials and temptations matter. And if we will handle them in a way that the Lord uh, calls us to handle them, they'll actually turn into triumphs down the road. And then last week, Derek talked about uh, hearing and doing this importance of we've got to hear the word of God, but then we have to do it. It's in the blending of the two that there is power in both the hearing and the doing. And like a good pastor, like a good shepherd, like a good teacher, James is gonna keep diving deeper in what does it mean for believers to act like believers. Last week, it was hear the word and do it. And now this week, he's gonna dig into this idea of love. Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us in in John 13, 35, that it is by this that all men will know that we are his disciples. It's by our love. And so we've been saying, James is telling believers, it's time to act like believers. And now in this section of James chapter two, he's gonna dig in and talk about, this is how believers are to love. Now, um, as we do this, as we jump into this, it's important that James begins to notice a problem that's infiltrating the early church and it's affecting their love. It's defiling the way that they're loving others. And it's this idea of partiality. It's this idea of favoritism. And and James noticed it in the early church and it's still a problem that plagues us today. Now the word partiality or favoritism, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let's, give, let's get some groundwork definitions. I'm gonna give you a couple so that then we can have common language as we read the text together. Uh, the first definition I wanna put before you is partiality is showing favoritism toward others based on a worldly distinction or a personal preference. And in doing so, we kind of take the place of a judge and we do this when we're not supposed to do it. And so partiality is showing favoritism towards others based on worldly distinctions or personal preferences. But for purposes of this morning, I'm gonna give you a two word definition of, for partiality and then we'll kind of unpack the text and see where maybe those two words come from. But the two words are this, partiality is inconsistent love. It's us deciding who we're gonna love, when we're gonna love them, how we're gonna love them. And I think we do this because our goal is to get something out of it. And that is inconsistent love. And James is going to call it out. And when we love like this, we defile the testimony of, of Christ. We, we don't represent to a watching world the love that we are supposed to be known by. And so let's read the text with those definitions of partiality in mind. We'll read the first 13 verses of James 2 and a reminder, this is not just me reading the text. This is the Holy Spirit beginning to teach us. 
And so read with me. Verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, partiality is a sin just about as old as time. Uh, every culture and people group have fallen prey to it, and we are no different. Uh, depending on uh, some of the ages in the room, I'll just give exhibit A to this fact. And some of us, this might be more recent. Some of us might be there today. And some of this, it might be decades ago. But I'll give you another two words as exhibit A to partiality. Middle school junior high, right? It's just like something happens. And, and I've been there, at least this was my experience where I went from fifth grade and I showed up in sixth grade and there was like this great sorting that took place. It was like the popular kids, you're over here. Athletes, you right here. Nerds, we might slot, slot you over here. And then there was like the band kids. <laughs> I was the band kid, okay? And uh, you might think, you know, even in the band world, you had the wind instruments, the brass instruments, you had the cool kids, the drum line. That was not me. I was a French horn player. And um, some of you are already categorizing me right now, I'm telling you. And, um, you know, um, you know I've, I've shared a lot of things from this stage, but that may have been the hardest one right there. There you go. So we're out. But look, partiality can go well beyond any of this Inconsistent love, partiality can show up a hundred different ways. It can be based on someone's looks. It can be based on someone's clothing, skin color, amount of money they have, their car, their house, their position of influence, their education level, their speaking ability. We have ways of loving inconsistently for uh, any manner of reasons. And yes, there are some ones that are maybe more obvious than others, when we, teach, when we taught about racism back in February, we came to this passage. That is absolutely a sin of partiality. And there are some that stick out more glaringly. But there are others that sneak in to our hearts. And they're only noticeable to the Lord and maybe to us. Because it kind of lingers, it hides in our heart. Our motives kind of conceal them. And it begins to defile us in the way that we love other people on the inside. Let me give you a couple examples of my own life because I want us all to get the wheels kind of turning in our mind. This is not just some sin that's out there. This is a sin that's in all of our hearts all the time and we've got work to do. 
I think of a couple buckets for me. One is um, just people that don't share the same opinion that I do on any number of things. Could be how they live their life, how they choose to live their life. It could be how they vote. It could be on just any number of other things that they believe. I just have a, it's like I have a bucket for them when I'm, I'm operating in my flesh. And I just go, oh, you wanna live like that? You wanna vote like that? You wanna do that? Well, then I'm gonna put you over here in this category and it gives me the right to like somehow love you differently. That's inconsistent love. There's a neighbor on my street that I've been convicted and working on that I really enjoy hanging out with him, but he's also really talkative. And so sometimes it's like, I just wanna go get the mail and not get into a 50 minute conversation. And really all that that is, is me wanting to pick when I love, how I love, and it's partiality. And it's inconsistent love and it's inconsistent with the call of being a disciple. And so I don't know what it is for you where you might be guilty of this. Let me do what James is gonna do this morning. He's gonna pepper us with some questions. Let me give you three questions to maybe get your heart thinking about where you might be guilty of this. We'll have the questions on the screen, but the three questions are this. Are there some people that you don't believe are worth your time? Maybe who do you find yourself complaining about to others? That might be a sign that you're showing favoritism, partiality, inconsistent love. Or third is, or do you avoid people who look and act and live differently than you? Maybe it's a neighbor, coworker. Very easily could be someone in this church. What is it for you? You see, again, sometimes partiality is easy to spot. It's definitely easy to, easier to spot in others. But it's harder when we begin to discern what's going on in our own heart. And look, it's one thing for partiality to show up in school. It's one thing for partiality to show up in the world. It's a favorite pastime of the world. It's a whole nother thing when partiality shows up in the believer's life, when it shows up in the church. We say all the time here, sin is different in a believer's life than an unbeliever's life. Because sin in a believer's life is worse than the sin of an unbeliever's life. We of all people know better. We have been rescued by consistent love. And we of all people should know, those of us who have been loved much, we know where to go to in order to love well. And so we've got to work on partiality and how well it creeps into our heart. And James is going to help us this morning, fortunately. He's going to expose it. He's going to call it out. And he's going to warn against it because he knows it's destructive. He knows inconsistent love will defile us. It will make us double-minded and it will make us unstable. And James is teaching us to live entirely differently. And so as we jump into James 2, let's get a breakdown of our morning. James is going to issue us four warnings. And then in the last couple of verses, he's going to give us an invitation. But he is going to warn us that partiality misrepresents God's character. It makes the church double-minded. It compromises the gospel and it defiles God's law of love. And so let's begin to look at the text together and begin to work on partiality that's showing up in our own hearts. Verse one, partiality misrepresents God's character. This is what James says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. A couple of observations on a couple of the phrases. First, I, th I find it very interesting that James has just called us to be 
not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And the first thing is he kind of moves now into the body of his letter. He could have started with any number of things and how he begins chapter two is show no partiality. He knows this is a common practice. The idea of partiality favoritism, it only shows up in Christian writings because from a worldly perspective, this is like something to excel at. It is a sport. It is something to learn how to do. But in Christian writings and what James is calling it right now is he is talking about something entirely countercultural. Culture moves in this direction and it makes sense to love people in a certain way so that you can get what you want. And James is saying, but that is not what we are called to do. And he is challenging this early church to live entirely different. Because if they're going to be dispersed as across the ancient Middle East, they've got, and if they're going to be known by their love, James is going, hey, this love needs to be impartial. Now, he also says, as you hold the faith, to be very clear, in all of our sin natures, we will default to inconsistent love. We will default to loving who we want, how we want, when we want, so that we can get what we want. That's what we will do in our flesh. It's in our very sin nature. The only way we have a shot at showing no partiality is if we hold the faith, if we yield to the proactive work of Christ in our heart. That will be how we can do it. And then it says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is revealing the character of God here and he's calling us to mimic the character of God. Just like Derek mentioned last week in hearing and doing. You remember he specifically said in the James passage that there's this, that section that says, be slow to anger. And he took us back to Exodus 34 where it talks about this, this verse that shows up all over the Old Testament that the Lord is slow to anger. It's the same idea with partiality. The idea of God being impartial is all over your Bible. One of the great truths of that is buried in Deuteronomy 10, 17. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. If you search impartiality in God, you'll get 30, 40 Bible references at a minimum. It'll point you to Colossians three twenty five, Romans 2, 11. Second Chronicles 19, seven, Job 34, 19, the list will go on and on. And, and it's why in Acts 10, when, when, when God starts to move towards the Gentiles, Peter's like, oh, I get it. Verse 34 of Acts 10, Peter's like, oh, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, that person, that nation is acceptable to him. James here, all he is saying is consider your God. Who is he? Now live like him. A core aspect of God's character is that he is impartial. He loves Jew and Gentile. He's come for the rich and the poor, the sinner and the self-righteous. And James is saying, act like your God. If you are a believer, if you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus, he's like, then act like me, act like him. And it's why in Deuteronomy 10, 19, that, he, that, 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 that Moses went on to say, and God called them that just love the sojourner. Therefore, you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. We've been rescued by this consistent love of God. We were once a sojourner, so go love the sojourner. We were once in bondage in Egypt. Now go love others that are in bondage. We were once lowly and God came and loved us. It's our job to love the lowly as well. Right out of the gate, James is gonna say, you've got to hold to the faith because faith in Christ and partial love, faith in Christ and inconsistent love are utterly incompatible. 
when our love is inconsistent towards other, we misrepresent God's character and that's sin. Now, by the way, if you're in here and you look around and you feel less than, if you feel less worthy of love for some reason, or if you look around and you're like, well, I don't have that status, I don't have this and that, and you feel less than, I just wanna remind you that's not how God sees you. God doesn't see you less than, that's not his character. His character is consistent. And he sees someone that he has uniquely made. And he sees someone that he has made to be in a, a flourishing relationship with him. He wants to be in a flourishing relationship with you. And so I don't know what you think of you. I don't know what the world has told you, but that is not how God sees you. Every time I talk with my talkative neighbor, I, I'm reminded, man, everyone has a story. Everyone has a past. Everyone has pain that they're working through today. And deep down, it's like the longer you get to talk to people, you, you realize everyone just wants to know, is there a God in heaven? And does this God love me? Does he care about me? Does he want to have any interaction with me? And that's what you and I get to do. Those of us who are believers, we get to represent God's love to our friends like this. What a gift that is. Shame on me forever thinking, is that worth my time? Making that type of value a judgment, that is a gift Partiality misrepresents God's character. That's the first. In verse two and through four, we're gonna see partiality makes the church double-minded. Let's look at it together. It says, for if a man wearing a gold ring, this would literally be gold-fingered man, he might have multiple rings on, and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Let's just stop for a second. It is true, you can tell a lot from a person's clothing. It's very true. There are times that you might be able to identify someone's gender or maybe their nationality from their clothing. You might be able to identify someone's occupation from their clothing. You might be able to identify maybe someone's wealth or at least their perceived wealth by rings and ornaments that they have on their bodies. But when we watch people walk through the door and based on their clothing, we think, they know there's, we think we know their story and we think we know everything about, there is about them. And then we begin to assign what can we either get from them or what can we, how can we kind of usher them to the side? We have become a double-minded church. That's exactly what the usher does because if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you come sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This usher is double-minded. This believer, this church maybe even is looking at the man in fine clothing going, what can we get from him in greed? As opposed to what can we impart in love? That's the believer's job. That's the church's job. Not to see what we can pull from other people. Verse four, if you're looking for another definition of partiality, if you don't like my definitions, there's James. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And James would say, you've become a judge with evil thoughts. Now, does this still happen in the church today? Absolutely. It happened in my life when I was 12 or 13. It happened in this city, in fact. My family and I didn't grow up in the church, but we would go occasionally and we lived in Plano and we went to a variety of other churches from time to time. But there was a church about, well, let's call it within eight, 10 miles from here that we began attending and it was very sporadically. 
and yet I noticed that the, the pastor started coming around my family a lot. It was, it was very interesting. In fact, uh, you know that game where you're like, hey, what was the first concert you ever went to? My answer is Oak Ridge Boys. Okay, Elvira, right? Any Elvira fans? So I went to a concert, first concert I ever go to, I go with my family to the Oak Ridge Boys. The, golly, that's two things I've now confessed out here. <laughs> and with us was our pa- the pastor. Pastor Mark was with us. And I'm like, that's interesting. Pastor Mark showed up at all my baseball games when I was 12 years old. And I mean, one time I was like, that's a little weird. It felt like a little weird. It's like, we didn't even go to the church a lot. And I was like, I asked my dad, I was like, why does Pastor Mark like us so much? And I remember my dad, I mean, I, I remember it very clearly. He looked at me, he goes, I think it's because Pastor Mark likes the checks we write him. Later that year, my family, I guess, stopped writing checks, but my parents got separated and we weren't attending the church as much and it seemed like the church pulled back from us. It seemed like they weren't as interested in what we had to give them since we weren't necessarily giving them anything and as they pulled back from, as we pulled back from the church, the church pulled back from us. And it, I can't help but look back and wonder, was the church double-minded? If you've been hurt by the church and you're in the room this morning, if you've ever felt used by the church, if you've ever felt discarded by the church once you'd kind of spent all that you could give, I I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not our God. That's not his character. And that shouldn't be his people. Um, And if you ever see it in us, will you let us know? We're not a perfect church. This is not a chance to get to throw mud at other churches. We're not perfect either. And if you see double-minded in us, will you call us out? Because it's a very sober thing to lead God's church. It's why Paul writes Timothy to be a single-minded leader in the church. In 1 Timothy 5.21, as Paul is is writing Timothy, listen to this. It says in in, in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I mean, we are talking a sober-minded Paul right here. He says, I charge you, Timothy, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's like Paul knew, look, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted, church. You're going to be tempted, church leader. You're going to be tempted, believer, to begin to love certain people that can do certain things for you. And I'm going to charge you in view of all of these things, you stay single-minded. It's one of the reasons that us, the leadership here at City Bridge, our elders and, 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 and almost all of our staff, we have no idea what you give lest we begin to cater our love or not cater our love. We are called to serve. We are called to impart the gospel. We are called to equip the saints. And there's no dollar signs over your heads and our eyes of going, well, this is who we need to lean in on because this is what we can get from them. No, we stretch to be single-minded. We are, we try to protect ourselves from ourselves because we know in our flesh exactly how we would begin to serve. And so we protect ourselves from ourselves so that we may not be double-minded. We can be single-minded. Partiality misrepresents God's character. It makes the church double-minded and then partiality compromises the gospel. Read verse five with me. It says, listen, hear my word. My beloved brother says, not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Next week, 
we're going to read some verses at the back half of James 2, and you're going to be like, does James know the gospel? Does he, is he aware of salvation? Come back to read verse 5. James is very clear of the gospel. He knows that it is a good God initiating with, his, with us while we were still in a lowly state. It's God that comes and chooses us. James very well knows the gospel. The question is, is the partiality in our heart, do we understand the gospel? If we think God needs a certain type of person dressed a certain way, we misunderstand the gospel and we misunderstand the history of God's people. God has always used weak means to show off his power. When it was time to take down Pharaoh in mighty Egypt, he sent Moses who was slow of speech, slow of tongue. He used a weak tongue to stand before a mighty king to declare, let my people go when he brought down a nation. When it was time to take down Jericho, God sends a marching band. I like to think a bunch of French horns just <laughs> circling that town and down go the walls. When it was time to take down a giant, he arms a teenager with a single stone. This is what God does. He takes weak means and accomplishes powerful deeds. It's what God does seemingly over and over and over again. When it was time for Jesus to change the world and build his church, he grabs 10, 12 men that were largely uneducated common men. I'm not even sure I would have started a small business with these guys and, and, and Jesus sets up his church and changes the world through them. It's what God's, God does. God seems to go out of his way to use the weak. And so if you've ever felt like that, you're in good company. First Corinthians 1, 26 through 30 says this, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many, that maybe some of you, it's very possible, were powerful. Not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. This is the gospel. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And verse 31 goes on, if you're going to boast in anything, you boast in him. I remember when my parents were separated, going back to when I was 12, my, my mom took me to a different church nearby, another church, let's call it 12 or 15 miles away. And um, I showed up at that church angry. I was confused. I was ashamed at the state of my parents' marriage. And because of that, I was in... I was coping with any variety of, of, of different things and I really didn't want to hear a whole lot about God at the time. I was mad at him. And there was a couple at that church that began to pursue me relentlessly. I mean, relentlessly. Even when I stiffed on them, they came for me. Their names were Ken and April Brown. Three decades later, I, I, I don't know where they are. If you know them, let me know. That's, they're pretty common names. Ken was from Palmer, Texas. Send him my way if you know where he is. But I mean, I had nothing to offer them. I was scrawny, <laughs> super scrawny 12-year-old. Could barely play the French horn. And yet they pursued me with God's great love consistently, even though I had zero to offer them. And thanks to them and God's pursuit of me through them, I met Jesus for the first time. And consistent gospel love can change everything. And when I think about people that loved impartially, I think about Ken and April Brown. 
There's some people that would maybe write off young teenagers that are lost and rebelling and they came pursuing me because they know what God can do with the weak. If you've ever served with students or if you're serving with them now, I just wanna say thank you. You're doing a lot more than maybe you realize. You're modeling consistent love and finding value where not always the world does, but God absolutely sees value in our kids and the power that they have. And it's why as a church, we've got to continue to get outside of ourselves. I love, it's one of the things, as we're working on some of our external focus initiatives, I've been so encouraged with what's happening with City Bridge Urgent Care because it helps us get outside of ourselves and begin to love people. Maybe even some people that don't have anything to offer us in return, but we get to love them and model God's character to them. And we get to watch the gospel unfold time and time again of these people that maybe others might write off. We get to see God do mighty works and then become leaders right here in our midst. I love what's happening with our neighboring initiative. We're up to now 22 neighboring captives, captains and counting where we're trying to take the gospel into our neighborhoods. And we've got Skylark coming. It's just gonna give us an opportunity to serve and care for 40 different kids. And we're gonna get to watch the gospel take off. But the early church, at least here for James, they, they were compromising on the gospel. Verse six, it says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Notice James is peppering them with questions, trying to highlight their inconsistency, trying to, in, in his grace, through his warnings, get them to change their ways. Now in verses six and seven, there's a lot of different commentaries and there's a lot of scenarios as to what James might be talking about might've been going on with the early church. But either way, this is one point everyone agrees on is the messianic community, community had become complicit, had compromised in how they were loving others and they had become partial. They were pairing up with the world. They were beginning to cater to people for the wrong reasons. And once you begin to do that, you're in a bad spot. Because once compromise begins, it's really hard to stop. And once compromise continues, consequences follow. The name of Christ will get blasphemed. Verse seven insinuates, and that's very costly. It's one of the reasons we talk about the deal here all the time. And as a church and as believers, we have to make sure we don't cut the deal with each other. And what we mean by that is a lot of times in churches, there's this idea of like, hey, if you will just come in, if you will show up, if you will shut up and you will pay up, we up front will say you're doing a great job. And if you will then pat us on the back and say, y'all are doing a great job and everyone just keeps doing it, we cut the deal and we begin to cater to one another and we, 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 we drop the high call of loving others like Christ calls us to love. And we just get comfortable in a building with lights and cameras and, and screens and all of those things and we cut the deal and we've compromised and we begin to cater to one another for absolutely the wrong reasons. Early church was doing some form or fashion of that. They were complicit in the compromise and we have to battle against it because we have been called by an honorable name you and I need to continue to reflect on how we've been called and rescued. That's the same gospel people need to hear. 
And this idea of in which you were called, there's, there's, there's many commentators that thought this was probably the, an allusion to the baptism in the early church. It was a very public thing. People were adopting the, the honorable name of Christ, little Christians, and they were saying, now it's time to go love publicly. That's how you were called. Now it's time to take that love publicly, no matter what it costs you. And yet the early church, just like us, we can be prone to compromise the gospel. That's the third warning James gives us. The fourth warning James gives us is partiality defiles God's law of love. Verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. We've heard that one before, most of us, right? Moses commanded it in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus would repeat it. And James is going to command it again right here. In fact, all 613 of the Old Testament commands, Jesus distilled down to this, love God and love others. And if anything, Jesus raised this standard from loving neighbors as yourself to you love like I have loved you. That's the royal law. James is starting to go, he, in verse five, he had told you to listen, now he's moving into, it's time to do, it's time to respond. Verse nine, but if you show partiality, if you do what verses two through four do, you are committing sin. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Leviticus 19, just a couple verses before Moses taught, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Don't be partial. By the way, we've been talking about this throughout. Just as you continue to read James, the entire letter, week in, week out, we've given you a tip. I would say go read Leviticus 19 along with James next week. There is a lot of the same themes in Leviticus 19 that James draws into his letter. But he is gonna be clear here. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Inconsistent love is sin. It's not a flaw. It's not a shortcoming, it's sin. You and I, in our flesh, are prone to be pleased with half duties. We are pleased to be good with partial obedience. But those are just fancy words for sin. Partial partial obedience is disobedience. Inconsistent love is sin. And James is wanting to call it out for us, graciously reminding us that when we pick and choose who we're gonna love, when we're gonna love them, and how we're gonna love them, that it's sin. And this isn't just something that, again, that's out there. James is trying to wake us up to all these little things that are in our heart and how we love other people inconsistently. In verse 10, he's gonna double down on this point. He's gonna say, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Basically, he's saying, observing God's ways is an all or nothing approach. You either are committed to doing all of God's word or you're committed to doing none of God's word. You can't just pick and choose What to do to excuse one area of sin for another is it's utter vanity. James is calling it out for us. Now there's, 
It's interesting that he picked out murder and adultery in particular. Was there just kind of, was that just kind of two random ones or those two of the biggies that James is, is, is picking on? Or is he trying to get our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount, which it seems like James is consistently trying to do throughout his letter because those two sins in particular, Jesus talked about them in the Sermon on the Mount. He kind of redefined them for us. And specifically in anger, let me read you Matthew 5. Jesus talking here, verse 21, about anger and murder. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Listen to this, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Basically saying, maybe you haven't committed adultery. Even the, the, the new standard Jesus has, has put out, but you are doing this with your brothers. You're insulting them. You're telling some to sit in the back. And then what Jesus says next is very telling. He says, if this is true of you, if you were offering your gift at the altar, if you're thinking that maybe I should come do some religious performance, remember that your brother has something against you. So leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come. Then come and offer your gift. And so James is leaning on this and we're gonna see that in a couple of verses, but he's saying, look, if this has been our thing, we're defiling God's law of love and we need to repent. We need to change our ways. And so let's go back to a second to some of those questions we looked at it. Who is this for you? Who is it? With whom has your love been inconsistent? I think James, through gracious warnings, is trying to help us discover where there's still some hypocrisy in our hearts so that it can be exposed and that it can be repented from so that we can go and pursue reconciliation. And as you begin to consider that, Let's read verses 12 and 13 together. Because after four warnings, James is going to give us a bit of an invitation. So speak and so act, verse 12, right? You've listened in verse 5, now do the word. Hearers and doers. So speak and so act in love and deed as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Those of us that know these things, that we're supposed to represent God's character, we're not supposed to compromise the gospel. So speak and so act accordingly. And James is graciously warning us that there is a judgment day coming. Even for believers, we will be judged. We will be safe from a justification standpoint, but we will be evaluated on how we lived. And James is reminding us, hey, there's a day coming that we will give an account for our love and how we stewarded it and how we loved other people. And it is a good thing that teachers and shepherds remind us that there's a day coming where we will stand before the Lord and give an account because when we remind ourselves of this, it helps us prepare today how to respond appropriately and with consistency, representing our God. James wants you ready for that day. And so he's graciously getting the hypocrisy out in, the, in front of us today so that we can repent while there's still time. Verse 13 says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. What does that mean? Does that mean that if I don't show judgment, if I, if I have inconsistent love during this lifetime, that, that I'm gonna face the Lord one day and it's gonna be, his love's gonna change and be inconsistent and I'm not gonna be shown any mercy. What is that? Is that what that means? 
And James is beginning to transition. We're going to get into what does this sentence mean next week. Don't miss it. Come back. We're going to begin to investigate because James is starting to move in a, in a direction. But let me close with the last sentence of what James does. Mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. I love this word triumph. It was a word that was used uh, for victors on the battlefield. It was words that were used by gladiators as they kind of stood over that which they had defeated in the battlefield. It's this picture of James going, you guys, we, we, we know this to be true. Consistent love will defeat inconsistent love any day of the week, and it is powerful. And when the redeemed live like it, and when they go and reconcile it, it is a powerful, triumphant thing in this world. And it will radically transform and change everything about people that have been redeemed from. And you and I know this, if we are a believer, we were once dead on the battlefield and then consistent love came for us and defeated the judgment that we were under. We of all people know that. And so when James says, so speak and so act, with that in our minds, it paints a completely different picture of the love that James is calling us to do. Be consistent. We don't pick and choose. We love exactly who God puts in front of us at all times, not missing out on a single opportunity, reminding ourselves that impartial, consistent gospel love can change everything in someone's life. It can change everything even here in this city. You and I know it to be true because we've tasted it. One day we're gonna see it again. We're gonna see that mercy triumphs over judgment again. And James is giving us this invitation that if we will speak and so act, in a similar way, we might still see it again today in both the friends that we walk with and the relationships that he restores and he doesn't want us to miss it because when believers act like believers, they begin to love like believers and it begins to change everything around them. And James is calling for an impartial, consistent love so that we won't be double-minded, that we won't be unstable, and we won't be undefiled. And this is an incredible call that James is ushering us into. Gracious warnings that call us to live an entirely different way. And so let's get to work, right? Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, Check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.